0: Perceived value is often kind of a function of two things. It would cost a human or a set of humans with like supply constrained expertise to do this thing. Or if I generate this, I know reliably I can generate ABC of enterprise value. I think both of those things are very quickly going to shift in folks' minds over the next couple of years. I think the perceived value of human expertise is going to collapse
1: Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Unsolicited Feedback. I'm Brian Balfour, founder and CEO of Reforge and your host. Today, I'm joined by my co-host, Fareed Masavat, And today, joining us is Claire Vo, the Chief Product Officer of Color and former Chief Product Officer of Optimizely. If you don't follow Claire on Twitter, you should because she has been on a tear of brutally honest really interesting spicy takes recently and today we cover two topics with her one the real cost and pricing challenges of new ai products and two we go deep into some of claire's views on the work behind the work the never-ending processes check-ins systems that kind of creep into the ultimate goal of shipping awesome products we hope you enjoy the episode how do you two know each other uh, have the them. internet oh yeah. just the, yeah, internet. the
0: internet you know
1: ah. i well free <laughs> told me that we... you you two have bonded over like early 2000 emo bands
0: yeah elder emo i should have worn my elder emo sweatshirt it's over then
1: my ah. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah we uh... have an
1: El- elder emo sweatshirt
0: it's a brownie face and it says feeling sad, never felt so good. It's good, really <laughs> good. And my four year old always asked me, he's like, why is, why is it so sad? And it's like, cause like, so it can feel something, you know?
2: So last night I was driving my daughter who's high school age, uh, home from swim practice. And she goes swim practice out in the East Bay in Lafayette. So we come through Berkeley and she was driving cause she's learning to drive, which is terrifying. And we're driving through campus, through Berkeley campus by the Greek, and there's just like seas of 40 year olds dressed like normal, generic, like average 40 year olds. It's obviously a concert, but they don't look dressed for a concert. And I look it up while she's driving, and it's the death cab for Cutie Postal Service oh, uh, Three Nights at the Greek. And it's just like, I was like, oh, it's just a bunch of
1: parents. Yeah, <laughs> and are, I felt kind of weird uh, about I it.
0: it. I called it the Garden State Special. How
1: did you go from elder emo into product? Because that's very clear that's transition. True. Well,
0: So as, a, as an elder emo, you create a constellation of personality traits, one of which is really deep on internet forums. The second one <laughs> really good away messages. Yep. And the third okay. is like creative output. And I think all of those things have made me a very excellent technology executive.
2: What an awesome answer. I love that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to participate in this. <laughs> so.
0: I love giving unsolicited feedback. That's like, me up.
1: It's the best part of
2: product leadership, right? Just hovering by someone's desk and being like, I don't know about that. <laughs> Lots of spicy product takes on on Is it 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 spicy? Not spicy, but I think like just enough off the like conventional wisdom that they're interesting.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I think it comes from like ex-founder stuff, right? Yeah. I also just feel like there aren't that many people that are actually in the CPO role that publish like real stuff.
2: Yeah. Just really aren't. There aren't. One thing that resonated with me was I have this whole thing about like it's the work that matters not the work behind the work and there's this like as things become more professionalized the work behind the work becomes almost fetishized as as like deeply important yes and sometimes people forget that all of that is in service of delivering a product to customers. And it honestly doesn't matter how you get there. And that you need a bag of tricks, not like a magic process that, you know, oh, if you write your one pager just the right way, or if you like do customer development in this exact way, you'll like magically have the answer that at the end of the day, it's shipping products that matters. And so much has been and the other piece that resonated with me in your last thing we might need to redo all of this yeah you we all are part of the, the episode of the conversation already like i'm still on yeah the but we'll appetizer. warm it up a little up. yeah <laughs> i i think like ladders are like the worst thing that's oh ever God. happened <laughs> in tech can, uh, can i
0: tell you like legitimately at optimizely like we published our ladders because people are like what does it take to get promoted and it's uh, people weaponize them. So we can, go, Yeah, you
1: yeah, know, yeah, yeah. save that for later. Save yeah. that for later. I'll we'll save that for later.
0: I, <laughs> I,
2: I am careful here sometimes because I think some of the motivations behind ladder publication and consistency and stuff are good. Yeah. But some of the outcomes are bad, which makes it like a really good <laughs> analogy for product
1: stuff. <laughs> okay. Yeah. What has been like kind of the recent stuff at color? You mentioned you oh. were launching new products.
0: Yeah, we just launched a cancer screening and prevention product uh, for large employers and labor unions. It's usually who we who we work with. So it is a end to end sort of screening, risk assessment, and then at home testing, as well as care advocacy into in person screenings. You all are probably right in right in the in the age group where you got to start thinking about it. So cancer is one of the Top three, if not number one, costs for employers, especially ones that are self-insured. Also, tremendous human life impact. Mm -hmm. And one of the number one things you can do to reduce both of those things, um, lives lost and cost, is to screen early and catch things early. But many people just don't know what they need to screen for, are uncomfortable because some of the screenings, like a colonoscopy, are not fun things to sign up for. And so with a combination of like a digital screener, some at-home tests that you can do to get early signals of cancer risk, and then we have actually a medical practice and what we call care advocacy that takes care of sort of end-to-end scheduling. So I don't have to sit on the phone, wait for appointments, I don't have to do pre-off, all that stuff. We just sort of take care of it. So we do that across five cancers. So breast, colorectal, cervical, prostate, and lung cancer. Wow. Yeah.
2: I'm curious for you as the CPO mm-hmm. of this company, that sounds like mm-hmm. it has both a digital mm-hmm. component, but also a lot of real world things. Yep. How does your team organize in order to uh, like make that feel like an end to end experience across both like IRL stuff and online stuff?
0: Yeah. So we, I mean, we think a lot about service design, not product design. So we're really thinking about what's the service we want to deliver, not what the, is the digital experience. Because The digital experience is just, a means to get somebody care. So, we b- both think about the service design end to end, but we've actually built a vertically integrated company that has we have a, you know, sister corporation that has medical practice, we have our own clinical laboratory, we have our own warehousing and fulfillment, we hired in these care advocates, we own our own support teams, and then on top of that we have digital products. And so, we're able to actually control and design the experience through the whole thing. Everything from Exactly what our shipped home kits look like and how they open and what they say and what they look like to how clinical notes come back to a patient. And then all of that is wrapped in sort of a digital experience that's intended to facilitate that. So we absolutely have to think end to end, not just from a service design perspective, but actually operational planning. Operational planning is a big part of how you experience the product because, as you can imagine, if part of a product is open access to consults to discuss your cancer risk and you show up in the next available appointments 3 weeks down the line that's not a good product experience so part of how we design is not just that there should be consults or the consult should look like x y or z it is that we want same day availability or or 48 hour availability at any time plus 2 hours on the buffer so it's you know i see it's a combination of digital experience clinical services and then operational readiness that sort of packages this whole product. I certainly have to think about all of that and then um, product managers in particular have to be really partnered with our clinical teams and our care teams think about deciding the whole the whole thing.
2: Super interesting. We have we had very small versions of this delivering course content at ReForge, yeah. probably less deep, but the uh, problems of who owns what mm-hmm. are always complicated and hard to
0: get hard
2: to get right. So
0: uh, I don't know who raises their hand and says, like, (laughs) I'll own it. Uh, (laughs) And and we try not to have sort of turf wars. One of the good things about being at sort of a mission driven company is everybody really at the the center of it. People want to deliver life saving, you know, services to patients or to, to participants. And so we're really focused on like preventing cancer. And so Anything you can do around that, product, operations, service design is important. But it's it's a it's a very interesting it's like very different from when I was at Optimizely and it was like beep boop. APIs. <laughs> are,
1: are those the actual sound effects when you those were walking are actually, around the office? Literally yeah,
0: literally the sound effects. Um, that's, how, that's how I code. Is I just beep boop, and then I have an AI interpreter that goes into a Repl.it that writes code for me.
1: <laughs> nice. I wish we had sound effects to our work. So you should. Actually.
0: You should bring like morning like disc jockey energy to this. Like, rah, you know, like yeah. the airport.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, ben, you hear that? Where we want some? We want some. We need some a soundboard, okay? Yeah. Okay.
1: Now that we're quite warmed up, <laughs> now that we're warmed up, we can get into the to the whole show. Farid, do you want to kick us off with the first topic of the day?
2: Yesterday, I think the or the day before, the Wall Street Journal released an article talking about the success but also challenges of the Copilot product from GitHub, which is they effectively charge $10 per user for this product and they lose $20 per user per month. Yeah, we're back (laughs) on delivering this product. And that there are some significant challenges around costs for some of these AI products for a variety of different companies. And this is not that interesting at its face. Like at the end of the day, like companies and startups have often lost money in order to gain share and drive usage in order to deliver products and drive network effects and get growth. But what I thought was more interesting was that with the exception of some of the real world services, Claire, which is why I wanna to talk to you about this, that have like real costs with them, pure software products have basically been 100, close to 100% gross margin. Like you make a product, the servers cost almost nothing, the price you can charge is significantly higher than that. So you charge what you think a customer will pay for that thing and cost to deliver isn't really part of the equation at all. But these foundational models from OpenAI and others are relatively expensive and have real compute costs and real like electricity costs and also API costs associated with them. And so the way I like to think about pricing is there's really like three variables, right? There's the cost to deliver, There's the perceived value from a customer, which is like how much they think it's worth to them. And then there's the price. And the price has to fall between the two. Because if the price isn't higher than the cost, there's no reason to sell it, no incentive to sell. And if the price isn't lower than the value, there's no reason to buy, no incentive to buy. And so it's this delicate balance. But that for a lot of software companies, because cost was basically zero, let's ignore marketing cost and like, R&D and all those things, but the cost to actually deliver the service is near zero, you could really just think about price and often really price it low for a long time. Like we've been in decades of software costing like very little money and and people feeling like it does. And so my question that I wanna like talk about here is if you're building AI products, how should you think about pricing it? Because if you just charge per user per seat, around these things and you're being charged based on usage. So number of tokens is how the OpenAI charges people. It's basically the more someone uses it, the more you lose money on them. So instead of making the most money off your like most engaged customers, you're making the least money off your your engaged customers. And how should companies think about managing this gap because I think this is new for a lot of people in terms of how they think about pricing because like most things don't cost money in software to deliver at 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 the margins right
0: yeah so one of the things that i think is interesting about some of these like gen ai applications is that each sort of generation has incremental value to the user in theory in theory in theory so Each image you generate or each document you generate or each sort of automation you generate can have this perceived value. So I think there's like an incremental perceived value and therefore an incremental perceived cost that both buyers and sellers can get their heads wrapped around. It also has a clean analogy with how software builders are getting charged. They're getting charged by API or by token. They can. They are generating by API or token incremental value, and therefore they can actually charge for that incremental value. So I've seen. I have a couple of friends that have done sort of generative products or startups, and this sort of like token or credit based model can be an easy way to start. Which is instead of seats, you're saying I'm going to give you a, a a bank of tokens to utilize against generations. That's how the cost accrues to me. That's how the value accrues to you. So it's a very clean mental model. Now, you know, that's a that's a drift from how you think about SaaS software in general, where you expect to pay a fat flat fee and you expect all incremental value to just become bundled in what you're paying. It, but I do think right now in this sort of experimental model where Gen AI feels very new, the generations themselves feel very valuable, you can go to this sort of like tokens or credit-based model. I don't think that works at, scale. So it'll be interesting to see sort of in the enterprise and higher how you do that balance between value delivered to the business, cost. But I think in some of these smaller companies or companies that are getting just off the ground, that that sort of like just pass the cost through and think of a token-based model that builds in some margin can be an okay way to start. And users can accept it because they understand the incremental value that you're getting.
2: Right. So then your job is to prove that the incremental value you're providing yeah. as a customer is enough more than just yeah. using Open AI exactly. directly yep. to make it worth it, which I think is, you know, sometimes when you rebundle pricing, it it's for predictability or being aligned with the value. And so this is tricky because it looks a lot more like cost plus pricing, mm-hmm. right? If you do that, it's like it costs me a dollar, I'm going to charge you a dollar twenty five. You think that's fair yeah. because of X, Y, and Z, yeah. and you'll go along with it. But I think the challenge with that, as you noted at scale, is, I mean, even Slack, which charged per seat, yeah. but with fair billing, yeah. meaning the more, you, the more users you had, the more we charged you, we found that our biggest customers hated it. Mm-hmm. Like they hated not paying less. They love that, that it's great to get a discount. They hate paying more and they hate the lack of predictability yep. because January one, they sit down and they write down a budget number and they're like, this is how much we want to spend for Slack. And the value equation is really hard for them to like, no one's thinking every day, did I get $180 worth of value out of this? Check, I'll keep buying it. And so you run into this problem of predictability. And I'm curious, like how, I don't know, people think this is gonna evolve. There are very few, especially if you're selling to other developers, people who outside of, I would say like maybe server stuff, and even there, AWS, like, Mm charges flat fees for the largest customers for certain amounts of usage how they're going to navigate this because the costs are very real and you could find yourself like out of money i think yeah. in some of these situations right
0: yeah i mean i think it's predictability is an issue on the buyer side but it's also an issue on the seller side right one of the best things about SaaS is you get this predictable subscription revenue that hopefully you know increases over time and so you have that sort of in, uh, unpredictabil- unpredictability, unpredictability on both sides. I think that's yeah. that's a challenge for all businesses. Also, cost plus pricing, your margins are not going to be in many cases ninety percent, hundred percent. I think that's also a real challenge that this kind of pricing model needs to grapple with. And then I am with you. People say they want ROA based pricing, and they say they want you want to they want you to pick a fair unit of value, and then increase price based on that unit of value. They really don't. They have a perceived value of the whole system over a set amount of time, and they wanna pay that amount, no more, no less, and they wanna know that that amount is gonna stay stable. And so we saw this you know, at Optimizely where you have event-based pricing, in theory, great, and in predictability, the more people use the product, the more, they paid you, and that doesn't feel great. And so you have to mm-hmm. strike this balance, especially in the enterprise. And then I, you know, I don't know how these these companies are gonna grapple with a margin issue. What I can only imagine is that the cost of scale and the cost of cost of sale and the cost of R and D go down so much that at, at a company level, maybe you can have better margins, even if the software itself is not not high margin.
1: Yeah, I think from a, I have a slightly huh. di- different view, maybe. Yes, yeah. just like a different <laughs> angle at it. So clearly from a strategic perspective this is okay for microsoft or any of the big incumbents right they're looking at this and they're like one we're going to take a huge bet that the cost of this stuff is going to go down this is probably the hot most expensive it's ever going to be at this moment right and we've got the cash to essentially underprice this thing get the volume which by the way helps get usage and more data which improves our own model and continue to fund that in a way that, you know, maybe an early stage startup or disruptor can't. Though, VCs are backing up the truck to these AI startups. So, who the hell knows, right? Uh, on, you know, who 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 knows on on that front. And so, you know, I think in most of these like technological shifts, the other piece that goes along with it, if you're going to disrupt one of these incumbents, is also. Uh, counter positioning move where the counter positioning flows through to the monetization model and is something that the incumbent would will not do right or can't do for because it's incredibly difficult for some some reason and so the cost plus pricing the token plus i think has a couple challenges one is that i wonder if it really passes the check mark of what we're talking about here is is it enough of a counter positioning move from a business model perspective to you know actually position against any of these incumbents that have much more cash a lot larger data a lot a lot user base two is that you both mentioned like perceived value and the perceived value i just wonder in in a user's head, how do they look at a token and think about the perceived value in that case? And I think it's very different from probably the the early adopters who are using these tools right now. But the moment you get into any of the majority, I imagine there's going to be quite a bit of friction in trying to understand like what the perceived value is. And in most cases, when people don't have anything to equate it to, they just kind of like give up, right? Like, And they just kind of go off um, into the wind. And so I don't know what the answer is here specifically. There's been a couple ideas that have been floating out there in the ether. One of them has been put forward by, I think it's Sarah Tavel or Tavel. I'm not, I'm sure how to pronounce the last name, but she's a partner at Benchmark who she wrote this pretty solid blog post called sell the work not the software and she gives this analogy to this legal startup even up who could have generated like a co-pilot type of thing for lawyers charged per seat created some sort of perceived value around increased productivity around generating. It's a certain type of legal a- a- agreement. I'm not, I can't remember exactly which one. Instead, they price in a totally different way, right? Rather than perceived, they actually charge based on the work. It's based on like per agreement that's generated by the mm-hmm. software. And there's a couple interesting things about this very specific example that I think she, she points out. One is that, there is actual perceived value that the a value that the user can, you know, pin that pricing against. They understand what the potential value of generating these agreements are, right? Num- number one. Number two is that any of the incumbents in the space, I have no idea who they are. I think maybe like Clio and a couple other ones, are. if they're at any sort of meaningful revenue in meaningful scale on the perceived model, they are probably not going to make any sort of attempt at upending that and charging in a fundamentally different way and then the third and i think the most interesting point on this is that she says by pricing in this way that it actually opens up markets that weren't available before and in her example of this startup even up you look at that and if you looked at the tam on a per seat basis and what you could potentially charge on a per seat basis the tam's not interesting there's just like aren't enough seats But you look at the number of agreements that these firms are generating and pin the pricing based off of that, and all of a sudden, it looks like a much more interesting TAM, And, and it's kind of changing the equation. How they price against something that the user understands and can generate some perceived value, and that perceived value is actually greater than the cost because i think in a lot of ways right now what we're saying is if you charge on the perceived model or if you charge in one of these other places like a token the cost is is going to end up being greater than the actual perceived value and that's the thing that has to fundamentally flip over time
0: Hmm. well what i think is is going to be really interesting and what's going to play out is perceived value is often kind of a function of two things it would cost a human or a set of humans with like supply constrained expertise to do this thing. And so for a legal brief or something, you'd say it costs a lawyer XYZ to generate this and therefore I can have a mental model for what that perceived value is. Or if I generate this, I know reliably I can generate ABC of enterprise value. I think both of those things are very quickly going to shift in folks' minds over the next couple of years. I think the perceived value of human expertise is going to collapse. And so as these, you know, I think there's going to be the cycle, right? These seat-based things are going to make, for example, lawyers much more efficient. It's going to drive down the perceived value of any one lawyer because they can do a lot more output. And then these uh, startups that are charging based on the output are on the other end of this, which is the actual outputs themselves are devalued. And so I think there's just going to be this very interesting Mm -hmm. cycle on how value is measured um, formally or informally against what are essentially human tasks or human outputs. When so many folks become augmented with automation or AI, that the cost of output starts to decline over time. Like I think that's the, the big question for me over the next couple of years is where is there actually value?
1: Mm. It's an interesting point, I just want to recast this to make sure I'm mm-hmm. I'm understanding it. So I think what you're saying is in a lot of cases, uh, the way that people generate perceived value is they're going through the math in their head of like, well, like how long would this take a full-time employee? How much do I pay mm-hmm. this full-time employee? How much more productive can I make this employee? And the pricing is a fraction of that like productivity gain. So it becomes like a no brainer. But I think what you're saying is, like, the thing that breaks down in that equation is that the perceived value of a human doing the work actually goes way down because of this AI tooling. So the thing that you're, like, pinning the productivity or the value against goes way down, and that ends up kind of in this, a little bit of this, like, death spiral where Mm -hmm. it's all of a sudden it's like, well, why, (laughs) like, why is this, why am I paying anything for this?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think I, I think it's going to play out in a lot of of knowledge fields because I think very quickly, you know, and, and we've we've seen this before. You see this in sort of freemium or prosumer products, where like perceived value starts to go down and down and down. The more available supply is of interesting software or problems that can be solved cheaply, and so I'm just curious how this is going to play out over a couple of years. Where I can imagine a world in which people say I could get a get a good lawyer for 15 bucks, why would I pay you 18 bucks? Like, I, I there, there's going to be this really interesting play there. And it's like, where do you, where is the constrained supply? Whether it's a data set, whether it's expertise, mm. whether it's quality, whether it's br- I mean, brand can be another differentiator. But I do think it's going to be something that software companies are going to have to grapple with in the next decade. Mm.
2: So let me throw a rent in this, which is after I read the Wall Street Journal article later in the day, I learned that Replit just said that they're making their AI tool (laughs) free uh, available to all their free customers. And so on one side, you have an incumbent, tons of money, partnered with OpenAI, so whatever money it costs them, it just goes right back to them at 40% or whatever percentage of OpenAI they own and enterprise value, it's a pretty good loop there. But on the other side, you have Replit saying, hey, we're gonna put these tools, in the hands of everybody, even our free users. And my understanding, I don't know this perfectly, but it sounds like Replit built their own models and isn't reliant on top of OpenAI in order to build these things. Maybe they were early on, but built their own code-specific models. And so it's sort of this thing that, Claire, you're talking about, which is, okay, I found this productivity gain. Somebody else is charging X. Let me find a way to do it at lower cost, deliver it for free. Okay, they have some pro stuff on top of that that costs more money. But now all of a sudden, not all, this doesn't just drive down the cost to an end user. It drives down perceived value. Because now, like I always joke that Slack's number one competitor was Slack's free product. That the better the free product was, the lower the perceived value of the paid product was to that same exact customer. Because they're like, they're not comparing it to the lack of productivity if we don't have this tool. They're comparing it to the productivity they gained from the free version. So now it's like, okay, now there's a Replet doing a 90% as good, let's say, or 95% as good thing for free. And all of a sudden, just because it's 5%, 10% better doesn't make it worth $10 per seat, $100 per package, whatever that cost is. And so this has this spiral like cost spiral effect where things get driven down to zero. And we saw this in the like app store market, for instance, for mobile apps in the in the mid 2000s, that as other people shipped stuff for cheaper, it sort of made perceived value go down, even though the productivity gain or the value you received, the actual value was high, but the perceived value goes down because competitors are driving costs down. And I think this is a really
1: interesting cycle. Mm. It also just feels like another play at volume in data, right? Like it's, you know, Mm -hmm. Replic clearly doesn't have the install base of GitHub. And to the extent that more data equals better models here, it feels like a bet on that. I I think the guarantee here is that the costs will go down like that. That seems like I think so many people are working on different versions of that at, at the moment but i think the i think the question that you two are honing in on is it's not just the cost equation it's how does perceived value play out around these things which is going to impact the pricing models and adjustments of all of these tools in an even bigger way
0: yeah i mean i think in 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 this replit example yes you can bet on cost going down i think you can also bet on two other things which is Enterprises will always pay to keep engineers happy and enterprises <laughs> will always pay to de-risk the tools that engineers want. And so okay. I think if you like Replit, I think is attempting to do is generate a state change in how software development happens and create a new user experience, a new mental model for how software gets developed. And enough engineers that create enterprise value want to move to that model. Then there are a lot of monetization options that are separate from the ai tooling itself that i think right. um, at the enterprise level you can you can do so it feels like a, a fill the lake and then and then charge charge the businesses sort of move Fred, where do you want to take this down both? so i think
2: the question is so what are the takeaways right like let's let's talk about some of the takeaways that we took from here that i i think are worth noting number one is if in this world a very expensive delivery like high costs. There is a huge incumbent advantage, right? That companies that have a lot of money, not only to build these models, which cost, by the way, we didn't even talk about the upfront cost, which is hundreds of millions of dollars to train these things, right? And also to deliver them, the incremental cost of delivery have meaningful competitive advantages, which is not normally true in new technological disruptions. Like often incumbents are you know, blind to them and so the, and and miss them so they get caught behind. But it seems like, and we've talked about this a ton on this pod, this has just not been the case with AI stuff. Like every incumbent is like leaning in very, very hard. I think the second takeaway that you brought up is alignment around, there are opportunities around aligning value, not with per seat productivity, because that's going to, as Claire mentioned, you know, spiral to zero over time as these tools get better and better, but towards the actual work or delivery or enterprise value that you're bringing to your customer. So in the case of even up, that's these packages that a lawyer can say, this thing is worth a million dollars to me. You'd, I can't do it or would, it would take a long time for me to do it, and you can do it better. So I think it's not just about productivity, but actually enabling new awesome use cases that were otherwise unavailable. And then I think the third takeaway is just like, it's not about real value, it's about perceived value. And there are a lot of different things that drive that, including what your competitors are charging for a product. And so you can't just think about a simple equation like I make an engineer 10% more productive. You have to say, Am I making an engineer more productive than the other alternatives that the same customer is considering? And that all of these things are so fluid right now in these markets that it's pretty
1: complicated. Can you, Why don't you actually just give a couple examples on that last point? Because I think what you're saying is like the reason we keep em- emphasizing perceived value is because customers are just not rational when they think about pricing in software, mm-hmm. even though I know founders would love to like they go through the the rational spreadsheet right uh, of like what you were just talking about. but it, it's just like just not how people behave. And so I'm wondering if you have any a couple examples from your experience where the way customers thought about it was clearly not a rational perspective on the value being driven.
0: Yeah, and I mean, optimizing is like a really, really classic example, right? The the fundamental thesis of of experimentation is that there is a hard and scientific and and statistically backed ROI on the activity you do and the the software under underneath that underpins that. And so there is this real, you know, it is an ROI based sale where you're saying if you can add X layer of experimentation or you can cover this much of your properties or this many events, you can actually incrementally and measurably drive your business up ABC, and we only charge you this, and it's great. And I think that, you know, from a positioning perspective works, but from a pricing perspective really doesn't. I think, you know, as I said before, with all SaaS, even one that drives incremental value, the more you use it, people really want the predictability of you know, sort of a a fixed price and very little variability as you scale up usage. Freed as you said, like, I bet people don't feel good. The more people I hire, great. The more I have to pay Slack, like that's not fun. Oh, the more I do experimentation, the more I have to write, you know, these experimentation platforms a check. That's not fun. What they want to feel is that the more that they do something, the the more they get incremental ROI out of that product. It's sort of like the, you know, the coin of, of scale pricing is they really want to feel like the more they invest in your software, the more the incremental value of the use of that software goes up. And if you have a unit-based pricing, sometimes it just doesn't, it doesn't feel that way. And so I think ROI messaging can be really effective in an enterprise pitch. It can help get you in the door and set a frame for the price. But I really think people approach investments in software, I certainly do, with the mindset of, I think experimentation is worth an XYZ investment. I think analytics is worth about blah, blah, blah. So I do think, you know, at least executives have shorthand sort of anchoring investment bounds on what they think the value of a practice is. And then the software has to fit inside that, that bounds. I think at least on things that are are driving sort of productivity, you know, it's different on the infrastructure side. Um, but I think on things that are software for employees to to drive productivity or drive incremental value, I do think there's just a lot of of anchoring that happens based on leaders' perception of how much they're willing to invest in in a practice or or in an area.
1: Yeah, we I in Reforge we have a lot of examples of this where, you know, from previous cohorts of of a program like retention and engagement, we'll get we'll get answers like 6 12 months later of people coming back being like oh i implemented this one thing i learned in your program it increased my retention or reduced my churn by like a few percent and you multiply that out at any sort of volume over a couple of years and this could be that's probably worth millions of dollars like to to the to the company right and and you know what they they you know they probably paid Something like a couple grand for the reforge, of course. Yeah. But if you flip that around in the pricing, and if you flip that around in the pricing, and you try to make that argument to somebody of like, hey, well, if you learn something and implement, you know, we have these examples that's worth like millions. Doesn't matter. They look at they look at reforge as something totally yeah. different, and they in their perceived yeah. value is generated by some, by something totally different, and the rational argument does not you know come anywhere close. Uh, to being like in the equation for how they think about paying for, you know, an educational product in in that way.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, I think with ROI, when you're on the buyer side, the only guaranteed thing is the I the only guaranteed thing I know is when I sign a contract, Mm. I'm going to spend that amount of money, (laughs) I might get the upside, I might not. But the guaranteed thing is, I'm going to write you a check and, you know, get a PO. And so I think I think that's the 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 challenge on the buyer side, and I mean you also have to put into play how budget cycles work and how budgets are largely top down. Yeah, you get an amount for L and D, get an amount for product, and so it just really isn't built based on kind of ROI. It's, you just don't do ROI based.
1: Well, I mean, that's the other thing. insane thing yeah. about budgets, besides just like the unbelievable need for predictability. It's it's more than that. It's just like you know, at some point, you know, after they've already spent the money, they're just like, well, uh, well, I need this because I need to maintain my budget. So if I haven't spent this money, I'm going to spend it. anyway, <laughs> like, I'm going to spend it anyways. Yeah, if you could be if you can get in those parts of the cycle that that can be that can be helpful. But yeah, the upfront predictability can can be insane.
2: Claire, I'm curious that as you now as we talked a little bit before we got recording here about your current role at color, mm-hmm. as you focus on really big dollar amounts and really big budgets with self-insured employers or large insurance groups, and you're really selling ROI. Like if you screen for these cancers, it will save you money. Do you find that the more that a customer is spending, the more connected the perceived and real ROI values are? Or do you find the same problem of like, yeah, you're telling me I'll spend a million now and I'll save 10 million later, but, I'm still not willing to spend a million dollars on this. Like, how is the equation different as you go up up the scale of dollars here? I think,
0: I think it's less about the scale, although I have interesting interesting perspectives on that from sort of like my background in SaaS where I think it plays out more. I actually think what's more interesting about healthcare is again, ROI is a very nebulous thing, especially when you're talking about prevention. And so the wow. time horizons are very long on something like preventing cancer. And when you talk to employers who have average tenures that are probably similar to what what we see in the people that we work in, our peer cohort, where you're only at a company for two or three years, you're at a company for some of the healthiest years of your life, the tenure of an employee makes that short-term ROI story very hard to tell in some instances, particularly around prevention. I think it's di- different in things like um, MSK or things that have immediate impact on em- employee health. Um, but I think long term things like prevention of, of cardiovascular disease, prevention of cancer, you really have to be thinking out, you know, 10 years, or you have to have a much longer tenured employee population. That's where that story becomes a lot more. More interesting. I do think it's very clear. I, I think the benefit that we have at Color both um, it's it's quite rewarding for our team and it's meaningful in terms of the product we deliver is that the health and human impact is sort of irrefutable. And so, you know, if you have one major cancer case in your employee base a year, it's tremendously impactful to human life and to your team. And so I think there's a combination story where you do have to speak to the ROI of early screening from an economic perspective, but you can also really speak to the health and human impact you can have with very simple interventions um, early. Yeah,
2: it's interesting. It's just saving money and productivity, like don't really resonate with people in meaningful ways, the way like help your employees be healthier, happier, solve real problems. And I think this is where like, I'm excited to see some of these gen tools do, which is like unlocking new superpowers versus just do the thing you don't like doing now 10% faster, yeah. which like just is so hard to sell and so hard to like position and so hard to like really think deeply about. Whereas when you're selling a mission, like unlock this creativity or unlock this health or unlock this power, I think you do gain a lot of pricing flexibility as well, which I think is a really good point.
0: One thing I'm curious about your, your thoughts on this is one of the things that's been bouncing around in my head, just going back to budgeting a little bit, is how uh, managers and department leaders are going to think about budgets. And I have this hypothesis that we have really had managers think a lot about span of control and headcount as sort of their pseudo budget, right? My I have a mm. budget to hire, you know, have a 10-person team, or I have a budget to add on a growth marketer or this and that. And I actually think over the next couple of years, managers are going to have to become much more fluent in the balance between headcount investment and software investment, where software is actually going to eat a lot more of what headcount used to do. And I don't think that's a skill that many managers have had to develop. You know, they've had to get good at recruiting and hiring and team management. But what happens when your team is sixty or seventy percent agents, for example, and thirty percent humans? But you're yeah. still a manager. How do you how do you think about that? How does budgeting change? How does management change? I think that's that's something that has also been bouncing around my head. And I'm curious. I love this, thoughts.
2: Brian. I know this is top of mind for you because you know Reforge sells to product people, and product leaders don't have budgets. Like they have headcount budgets and nothing else. And outside of marketing, almost very and engineering to some degree like there aren't a lot of teams that like do and sales do build versus buy decision making so brian i i would love for you to riff on this and how you face that challenge because i think it's really complicated because there's no if there's no line item how do you how do you solve for this
1: well i'm interested claire what do you how do you think about you say that a lot of folks haven't had to think about those things Uh, is there what do you see in the differences of you know needing to think about strategic headcount versus this type of this type of budgeting?
0: Yeah, I'll I'll give an example, which is let's say we have a engineer that we need to to backfill, right? Somebody's a tritz, We have a, a an open headcount right now. The default, you know, sort of fallback for a manager is say, okay, I'm going to make a backfill request, I'm gonna make the case to backfill this person, and what I'm gonna ask for is the headcount, the thing that I'm gonna ask for for the headcount. I think what shifts is you start to think, okay, I have X whatever in spend to to generate this kind of output or or do this job. Are managers spending time thinking, could I invest this in automation? Could I invest this in software? Is is a headcount the right, backfill strategy now that we can do so much more with so much less. And I don't think managers by and large have had to do that sort of analysis at the systems level for when they're thinking about constructing their team. They think I need five people on my engineering team to cover X, Y, D, Z. They don't think I have X million dollars in spend budget. I'm gonna spend 60% of it on headcount on FTEs and 40% of it, this is how I'm gonna fill the rest in order to output you know, the expectations for this team. I don't think that's how many managers think about the job to be done, at least frontline managers. And I think we're going to move to this place where agents can meaningfully do work, right? Be parts of teams. And so I'm curious and actually I'm really curious your point of view, how you upskill managers to think about hiring automations and managing automations and integrating automations as parts of teams and budgeting teams not based on headcount but based on overall spend
1: i don't i don't think it's an upskilling challenge i think it's an incentives challenge Be- yeah, I agree because because the all oh, yeah, yeah, yeah we're <laughs> gonna get into because all the incentives right now are are the way that you progress in your career is that you grow your team right so until you change that incentive and mindset, you're not gonna change any of the stuff that's that's downstream. Otherwise, they're gonna look at that budget and be like, well, how can I maximize that towards headcount, right? So that I can grow my team, grow more managers, you know, get the better title, like all that kind of stuff. And so I just, I, I've been, you know, I've been harping for a little bit while on just like, I think, you know, I, I'm a big believer small teams produce bigger things. But actually ingraining that in an organization that needs to grow is so hard because all of the industry incentives are just fundamentally flipped. In the opposite direction and so i don't know that's maybe maybe i'm just trying to connect my like hot wow. take button to this conversation but <laughs> that is a, no. like, it might be a stretch but that's by like i think you change the ins if you change the incentive then you probably get them to start thinking a little bit differently
2: it it is really interesting that we have whole teams like procurement teams around analyzing every single software purchase from $5,000 up to $100,000. But for most teams, adding a single headcount, which is on the order of a quarter to a half a million dollars per employee, is a generally much more simple process to do. And even worse, the nonlinear, like second order effects of team size are pretty well (laughs) documented and are never part of the equation like we treat headcount and most annual planning as a number with one or two digits, not a dollar yes. amount. That's like, you're going to add $11 million of operating budget to this team. And I I think that's, it's not just the incentives, but like the way we look at R&D in particular as free. Yeah. In most of these companies, I think because the investment landscape has accepted very large r&d budgets for most of these companies for very over long decades long periods and
1: so there's no reason to scrutinize it right all right i'm gonna use this as a transition point then
0: yeah, go ahead. Because,
1: do because our second topic for today was we actually wanted to give some unsolicited feedback to some of your spicy tweets, uh, Claire. That you've <laughs> been going <laughs> <out>. <laughs> most. I will say, po- I think it's going to be all positive, uh, unsolicited oh, feedback. So, <laughs> yeah. Violent. But you've you've been on a tear lately. I gotta I gotta say, like with with the hot takes on on Twitter, what had what what lit that fire.
0: What lit that fire? So a, a couple things. One, I feel like very few people talking about the practice of product management are actually CPOs operating at scale and businesses that need, need to grow. It all feels very theoretical, very textbook, very, I'm trying to get an audience. So I'm going to read a book and regurgitate some stuff. Like, But when it comes down to it, what you're really doing when you work at a startup is you're building a business. And no matter how fancy of a product job, you, you have and I think I have you know I have the fanciest product job I run I run product and engineering and data and I have this big team. I think not talking about the work is very destructive to generating value. And so many people talk about the, the, the work that surrounds the work and very few people talk about the action, doing the actual work. And so I just think that there's this need for a voice that says, look, in in theory all this stuff is great and at the end of the day when you're building a business when you're building a team when you're operating i want to stand as an example of the type of product team that i want to run and that i think is effective which is no one is too good for the work like no one just manages the work people actually have to deliver value um there's no pride in like size and scope there's only pride in output and impact like I have a big team. It's great. At the end of the day, what I care about most is building great product and helping that team do so. And so I just think there's there's this missing voice of what it actually means to build product, what it actually means to build a business Um, and especially at, at higher levels, what it looks like to operate. And really care about the work not just the the practice
1: yeah well i'll read the intro to one of these i'm not going to read the whole thing because it's it's quite a long tweet but you say almost everything about growing the size and scale of your team has an immediate and detrimental impact to the thing that matters most building awesome products unless you actively fight against these effects you'll wake up one day with a very effective bureaucracy but a very poor product and you list off a bunch of these things there's a whole category of meetings like one-on-one silo decisions, consensus-driven meetings, and this whole process—you know, diffusing ownership, policy, operating—all of these, all of these types of pieces. And so, I'm just interested: like, why do you think these things creep in over time?
0: Because of incentive. I mean, because of incentives and complexity. Oh, you're speaking
1: like my well, language. Honestly, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Honestly, <laughs> yeah.
0: I mean. What's what's really interesting is is as companies grow, there are incentives for careers to grow. Fareed, as you said, the ways careers grow is you have more scope of control. The way we define scope of control is people. When you have more people, you have to coordinate those people. It becomes more costly. People start to, especially in remote or async environments, people start to get uncoordinated and say so you put in process and policy to sort of bring things in line. And all of those things are detrimental, I think, to building and shipping stuff that's great and also shipping stuff that's fast. And so, you know, as somebody who's brought in to wrangle fairly large teams and fairly large delivery scales and scope, I absolutely think that you can't just have like a chaos reigns strategy when it comes to large, large teams. But I also think my, I, I don't think of my job as scaffolding the organization and, you know, putting in process and making sure we're doing things, you know, the capital R right way, I really think my job is to keep this very, very big machine moving as fast as possible so that we can actually gain the output from the investments we're making in headcount as opposed to getting decreasing returns on that that growth in, in headcount. I mean, the, the thesis of growing headcount is we can do more and more and more, but when incrementally that more has a cost to it, you start to get less and less and less. And so I think the magic trick that you have to pull as a product leader or as an engineering leader or as a company leader, is how do you get more and more and more just as efficiently as when you were a small team? And to me, that is very tactically looking across the system and ripping out the the bad effects and lending your credibility, lending your position to give people Mm -hmm. permission to rip those things out. I think people come into organizations and say, they're big, we have to ABC, we have to whatever. And I think realistically, like pull it out, see what happens. If it doesn't serve you, you don't need it. And I think sometimes people need that voice that says, we can actually live without some of this. We don't have to do it this way. Let's experiment with it. And let's see if it speed seems up. I mean, also candidly, I'm like very impatient. So (laughs) that is, yeah, that is one thing. So anything that like, you know, if I don't do it now, it's not gonna happen till later. Like I just wanna do everything now. So a a lot of my approach is to just keep speed and cycles fast. Cause I think that ultimately, I think I say this a lot speed beats or fast beats, right? Like the more cycles you do, the faster you can learn versus like sitting in a room and trying to get to the right solution.
1: What are a couple specific things you've ripped out at color or even optimizing like anything?
0: Yeah, at color. So I stopped doing one-on-ones regularly. I was spending like, I, I mean, I don't know. I was spending a good two solid days just in one-on-ones. And what I realized is that we were doing them because as a leader, you're like supposed to do them. And we just entered this phase where we needed to be very generative and very fast. We were launching this new product and those one on ones were just not they weren't serving me personally. And I don't think they were serving the business. Now they're starting to, to to come back in because we're in a different cycle of life and I need to you know pulse with people. But what I did is like, I'm not doing regular scheduled one on ones. I need building time, I need building time every week. If you need time with me, you may have mm-hmm. it. It is yours. And if I need time with you, I will proactively find it. And I just, I pushed a lot of my managers to say, like, you're spending 30% of your time in oh, one-on-one. More, spend 30, so spend time, a day so. a week. Yeah, yeah. Spend a day a week with your team brainstorming and building together and coming up with, that's a much more useful use of time than these like si- sort of silo check-ins. So i said say that's one thing, one thing that I did. I mean, the other thing is, kind of like expecting everybody to be ICs in, in some some way, shape mm-hmm. or form, which is like no one gets away without actually doing work. I'm PMing some products right now, like with a core team, our VP of products, PMing a product, like people just have to take on actual work. No one's job is like career development, hiring and one-on-ones. That's not a job in my org. Wow. Like you have to do more than that. And I think setting that expectation, I mean, even at the way we operate level, which is one of the things this was about a year ago that I observed in our PM meeting is we were talking a lot more about how we PM than our products. And I was like, no, we have to talk about, like, literally talk about the products in our product meetings. So that that was something that was was really, really helpful and really, really important. Mm-hmm. I don't know, just... Just, and then just trying, trying things, you know, just giving people permission to say, we can try it, it can be wrong, we can roll it back.
1: We had a similar, Um, we had a similar phase at Reforged. You know, the quality of the Notion doc you wrote became way more important than the thing you actually shipped. And, yep. yep. Oh, God. You know, like that gives me, that gives (laughs) me a bunch of heartburn. And, and so we've been, you know, past six months, we've been really trying to flip that. And, basically mandate a customer facing asset if we do any sort of like type of product review and stuff. And I'm going to give this a go in this planning cycle. I mean, we're going to do some pretty lightweight planning this year, but you know, we're going to keep the 2024 plan, you know, notion doc to probably like three quarters of a page or less and then do everything else in customer visuals of like, okay, well, how might these themes manifest themselves, you know, in the product or in the marketing by by the end of the year and and communicate it that way. But I, I, it is, it's just like so easy with the, like all of these tools and stuff to just rabbit hole on the to what Fareed was saying earlier. It's like the the work behind the actual, the work behind the actual work. And for some reason, I don't feel like people really like, they don't realize they <laughs> they're 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 doing that when they're yeah. it, which is part of the challenge. So I think it's particularly
2: hard for product managers because product managers don't have a ton of their own work product that is customer facing that they can show and be like, I did this. If you're an engineer, you're like, I wrote this code and a customer is using it. If you're a designer, you're like, I made these pixels and a customer used it. And so something that happens in product management is your outputs are intermediary work products, like things along the way on the assembly line. And so those things start to take on more weight in things like career ladders, in things like how your manager evaluates you, in internal meetings like product reviews, all of a sudden the deck is more important mm-hmm. than the prototype. The pitch is more important. The brief is more important and making it really great and all the data and research you did to do it. And this other part that happens is this idea of show your work. It's not here's the right answers. Let me show you all the work I did to get there so that I prove that I'm a good boy who does all my homework, you know, like that kind of thing. <laughs> And those two things like create this like this like energy around intermediary work products, which I think one like very simple thing to do is like uh, oh, and then the other effect is the the false, and I think you said the speed beats fast beats right thinking fast beats right. There is this idea, and I see it all the time, especially in annual planning, but also in product briefs, that if we just spent more time up front, then we wouldn't have made this mistake later. And I think that's like in 98% of cases, just wrong. Yeah, It is like, you cannot solve fast beats right. Like, absolutely. And so what happens is it's not just incentives, like adverse incentives, it's this, hey, we failed in this way. We shipped a product that nobody used. We made a mistake we didn't like anticipate. And so what happens is this like reverberation through the process all the way back sometimes to the beginning that's like, well, if we spent A week now, we'll save two weeks later. And just to get back to the ROI conversation, it turns out that's never true, (laughs) you know, because it turns into a month now to save a day later or something like that. And so I think the thing you have to do, and I hate to say this because it's also a process, is just like, a light light postmortem to be like, how what is all the work we did to do this thing? And how much of it was a waste of time? Yeah. Like how much of it was just wrong? And it turns out the further you are from the customer, the more wrong you are. So there's no way that being doing more work up front is gonna get you there. And so I think a lot of this is just like about being I think and I think the AI tool stuff should help us. We should be able to get to customer facing assets more quickly through the use of these kinds of tools,
1: I hope, and help product managers do more of the work. To set their teams up for success. I think it's both like it's pain, right? So, so those process steps up because there's there is pain and failure. Like I agree, Claire, with your fast as yeah. fast as right, but it still sucks when you're wrong. Right? <laughs> like I still feel like shit when I'm wrong and. <laughs> And and I know like other other folks do as well. I think uh, you know, I've had enough reps at being wrong that I'm like, all right, whatever, like let's get past it and keep moving forward. But I think what stems from that pain of failure is something to try to prevent that pain, right, in the future, which is where the process yes, comes in. Yeah. But the problem with that is that by every little piece of process you add in there creates its own incremental amount of pain. Because who, I don't know who likes, there, there are probably folks who love these like systems and processes and all of that kind of stuff, but the stuff stacks up to a point where there's so much process, there's so much of these things, in there that people are unhappy with their work they're unhappy with their job because they're not getting reps at the things that actually create meaning which is creating and shipping something in the world and seeing people respond to that in a positive way right and so it's just these cycles of pain where like you try to prevent pain but that thing you're doing to prevent pain is actually creating pain in itself it's just not as clear as you know the the pain that of, of just being wrong
0: yeah, I guess I'm very similar to you, which is I've been wrong so many times, <laughs> so many times that I just sort of like, accept we're probably wrong, wrong with good instincts is is what I'm shooting for, which is we want to get in the, in the neighborhood of right, but then accept we're probably not going to be right. So I, I, and I think the only way you know is, and this comes to my experimentation background, the only way you know is just to get things in the hands of customers. And we launched this big product recently And people had a lot of very strongly held well reasoned great opinions and i wrote down what everybody thought was going to happen because i could guarantee you at some point everybody's really strong strongly held opinion was going to be proven wrong one way or the other and i think that sort of taking the ego out of of product management is a very freeing experience even at the executive level taking the ego out of my ideas have to be right and i have to be the smartest person with the best deck And the most compelling argument, really at the end of the day, what speaks is your ability to access customer problems, respond to, to, you know, build solutions and then respond to feedback very quickly and in the right direction and build margin along the way. I think those things make you a great product manager, not sort of like writing term papers about feature, feature development.
1: I'm just interested in how the team has responded to some of these mantras like fast is right and and you know making everybody an IC and and those pieces.
0: I mean I think it's it's interesting, right? Because when I joined Color, we were actually much smaller and we grew necessarily with the scale of of the business, which was growing very, very fast. Um and so I actually did we we deli- we needed to deliver a lot. We needed bodies to deliver deliver that work. And so we actually I built out the team pretty scaled way, which meant that I was putting a lot of a lot of stuff in place and then figuring out what didn't wasn't necessary and ripping it out. And so I think, you know, not being precious about experimenting with what scaffolds the organization sets so an example that we don't have to be married to anything that doesn't serve us. We can try things and then and then pull them out as they don't work over time. And there are different seasons in companies, right? You have scale seasons, you have new product build seasons and and anything adjusting to that is really important. I really try to um, lead by example. And so when I say, you know, no one, everybody's gotta do IC work, it means that I have to do IC work. When I say everybody needs to know the details, I mean, I need to know the details. When I say folks need to be full stack and have opinions, It means i don't defer to what my head of design says or what my head of product says i actually share my opinions give a lot of a lot of credence to their expertise but i'm also not shy in saying when i think things need to go a different direction and helping the team adapt i you know it's easy to say it works when you're at the top right you'll have to ask the team what i will say is i think it's in my mind it's some of the most fun that you can have at a startup is you, you can sort of dismiss these rules that have to apply at larger companies. So to me, I hope we've hired people that wanna operate in this way, wanna be scrappy, wanna have impact, care about the things that matter. If they didn't, they probably wouldn't be on, on this team. And you know, the other thing that I try to do is direct to me, I have a couple very high impact ICs. So um you know I have the head of engineering reports to me and heads of product and head of data, but I also have two or three ICs that are at a very, very senior leadership level, but that prove that there is a legitimate career path for very, very high impact ICs, basically at the director VP and plus plus level. And I think that is my little way of setting example that scale can come in a different way. Career growth can come in a different way. I actually think one of the highest impact people on my team is an IC, like can do anything, doesn't want a team very high impact and I want more people to see that that is a path and that, you know, the only way to career growth isn't just growing your yeah. team. How do we- So I, I just, that example- How do we
1: change we'll, the incentives? We'll, we'll like Going it. back to the original, the root yeah. problem, how do we change the incentives?
0: You have to change, you have to give paths, right? So my, lad, we talked, you know, Farid, you and I talked about the 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 pros and cons of ladders and then maybe- Wait, there's get pros. In.
1: I didn't hear any pros in
0: uh, there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, pros as they do. I think without ladders, let's talk about the pros. Without ladders, it's very hard for managers to have language around internal fairness and external, That's fair. That's you know, yeah. you know, balancing. Yeah. Like you just need a language. Yeah, it's a tool to have a shared language. Now, all tool like many tools, they can be weaponized. So it's it's really about how you use the tool. For example, though my IC, my ladders, I see. All the way up to like the what L seven or E level, like I C version of the ladder, all the way mm-hmm. up into the executive, even in product, yeah, even in product, okay, all the way up. And then I, I think candidly, managers need the discipline to hold the hold the line. I think people have become very uncomfortable with what it actually means to manage teams and create growth outcomes that are not what individuals are maybe sometimes asking for or demanding when they don't serve serve the business. So I think that's an, the other thing is I spend a lot of time coaching leaders what it means to grow their team, even if there's limits on how many managers we need, even if we're not hiring this year. I, I think people just don't have that many tools in their tool belt to grow individuals and we need to give them more from a financial perspective, from a title perspective, from a scope and role perspective. And I try to be really creative in in the tools I get by managers in order to do that. We
1: just did that at Reforge. I I actually, I just did an episode with Lenny on his podcast and we were like going through these like 10 different kind of one-liner lessons. We somehow got down this, a similar side road here. And there was a framework that I used to, that I'm going to, I'm going to publish at some point that I was actually surprised people. Like it was the thing that resonated with people the most. And it was this whole thing of uh, players, captains, coaches, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, there's three types of roles internally, all are 100% needed for us to, you know, win the game. But the piece that I think resonated with folks is like, there's two very different types of leadership. There's leading by, you know, being on the field, which are the captains, and are the very senior ICs that I think you're talking about. And then there's the coaches, there's the people that coach from the sidelines. But those two styles, the, the responsibilities and how you lead in those two roles. Are fundamentally different, and ultimately, a mm-hmm. team is much better served by the more star players you have on yeah. the team. Not adding a ton of people to the coaching, <laughs> to, 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 to the yeah. coaching, to the sidelines. Yeah, and it's and so we we did this. We we basically turned a bunch of people who were coaches into captains about six months mm-hmm. ago. We level. We created levels for the captains all the way up to the C level we made comp equivalent across both the coach and um, the captain bands. However, my spicy take is, I actually think to change the incentives, you need to make the captain band, comp the captain bands more. And then, you know, we're in the process of making all the titles equal as well. And the whole idea, the whole goal is like, there is no career trade-off to continue down that IC path so that the folks that actually go down the coach path choose it for the right reasons and not the wrong reason, the wrong reasons being thinking that is the only way that I am, you know, that that's the only way that I can progress my career. But I think in terms of changing the incentives, I actually think you have to tip the scales in the other direction because yep. all yep. of the industry incentives and how a bunch of other companies work are a bit of the exact opposite. So you almost need to like provide an even bigger carrot in order so that yep. people are making there's a real cost to going down the coach path. So we haven't made that specific change yet, but it's something that I've thought quite a bit about. And part of that is I think the coaches, I wish there was a way to measure this more tangibly, but I think what you're talking about with holding the line is like, they need to ultimately be measured by, you know, output divided by the number of people on their team.
0: Yep. And, and let's actually draw it back. it. Output divided by the dollars spent on that. And that
1: gets to your that, get, team. that gets to your earlier point of yeah. like how not to think about it just as people, but to think about it as people in software. Spend. Yeah, spend. Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. I mean, I I think one of the other things that I I, I want people to hear. I always try. I mean, like I, I joke like I have the I have the I have the queen bee product job, right? I have the CPO job. I even run engineering. At the end of the day, it's way more fun. Way more fun to build product. I think I'm good at what I do. But at the end of the day, I want people to remember there's actually a lot of joy in being creative, in being generative, in building product. Like that is the most fun part of the job. I'm having... You know, maybe it's just for me, but like, I'm having a great time ICPMing one of these products because it is actually the fun part of the job. The fun part of the job is not making sure our PRD templates are good or that handoffs happen or the right stakeholders come in. It, those are all necessary evils to building something amazing and world impacting. And I, I just wish, you know, I wish the externally celebrated things were more about how people build amazing things. And we see these great tweet threads of like actual product people are building, as opposed to great tweet threads of like, how they run their process. And I I think I, I just think it's also just a lot more fun.
1: It's tough, because, look, ultimately, I want people, I want to hire people at Reforge that care about growing their career, because there is a particular yep. level of ambition, and, not, and I want ambitious yep. people, that's who I want to be around, right? Like, that's who I want to work with. Yeah. But I want people who want to grow their career by growing the business, yep. not by growing their team. Yep. And those two things are actually fundamentally different. But it's it's just hard, it, it, I just find it really hard yeah. to separate those things. So,
2: But, so... One of the challenges, I, I had this joke, I still tell it sometimes, that if you ask 20 PMs where they wanna be in five years, they all say, VP a product at a Series B startup. It's like literally the, every single one. Yeah. And so like, this is the tricky thing, is that the common ambition for product people is to lead a product, mm-hmm. right? And And that makes sense. And so when you look at what does it mean to lead a product, when they go to, in, in, no recruiter is gonna talk to them if they haven't already managed mm-hmm. a team. Yep. No recruiter is going to like pitch them if they haven't shipped a successful product too, but through a team with a like large team size. So it's like, oh, I have to be director at a public company in yep. order to be a VP at a scaling startup. I need to be a VP at a scaling startup in order to be a CPO at a slightly smaller place. Mm-hmm. And so the trick is, is I I guess my question for you, Claire, is like, how do you navigate that in a world where the externalities of like how that person's going to like, it's not going to translate. You're the one of the very few companies with an IC product management ladder that goes up to that level. Like, what do you do when that person's like, yeah, I still want to have your job someday. So how do I get it?
0: I mean, (laughs) I I think it's, it's, it's a really important question. And, you know, we do, we have, we just promoted somebody to a director of PM. They're overseeing, you know, other senior and and ICPMs. Um, and so we do still promote people who have great team leadership capabilities as, as well as product capabilities into leadership roles. I do think there is a Again, Brian, as you said, there's a difference between being a captain and a coach. I think what I kind of expect is people are captains and coaches for much longer, right. like a much. You know, they're they're captains who occasionally, you know, do. Oh my god, my sportsing metaphors out the door.
1: <laughs> I'm but trying like, to think of a metal band metaphor, How but I, I don't. I don't, know. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs>
0: Um, Everybody plays an instrument. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I do think I expect people to be captains and coaches for much, much longer before they specialize in in being a coach. I think that's maybe one very specific thing I do. I think the other. I mean, this is one of the biggest challenges of leading a product organization. If you want to be a VP of product, let me tell you two things that are going to be really hard. One. The amount of time you think you're going to spend on strategy is going to be much less than you oh, imagine. Yeah, yeah. Everybody they interview that wants to go up a level, why do you want to go up a level? Oh, because I want to think more about strategy <laughs> and less about taxes. <laughs> God. You know, I mean, do you? I spent six hours QA like a rule set oh, last God. Saturday. Let me tell you about the you know the the glamour of the v, you know VP product job. So one is, the other is there actually aren't that many people to manage in a product team. Yeah. Yes. I, very different from engineering. Engineering, I I have more management opportunities than I have people raising their hand for management opportunities. Again, because they have the more fun job, they have the job of building code, and shipping stuff. In product, the ratios are such that there aren't actually that many management roles relative to the size, <laughs> the size, the size of the company, or even the size of the building building team. And so there are just much fewer people that are going to have opportunities in smaller teams to become managers. And so I just try to give those people opportunities to be team leaders. So whether or not they formally manage other product managers, for example, our senior managers are the partner to the in engineering managers who oversee sort of like the the engineering team and what they build and how they build. So I try to give those for, sort of informal leadership opportunities to folks. But the reality is I have three manager roles and probably two director roles and a VP role in my product That's team. still quite a few. Overall, yeah. I they?
1: mean, my expectation I, on this is that I, I think it's very rarely 100% hundred percent or zero on these captains and coaches it's 70 30 in both directions right like if you're a captain you're yeah. spending 70 percent of your time on ic type work and 30 percent of your time on you know leadership type work and it's the exact reverse for coaches anyways that ends up being the expectation it's also the reason why i hate the term player coach because I, for most when people refer to that they they get in this mentality of like i split my time down the middle i do 50 50 But I actually, Mm -hmm. I just don't think, I just don't think that works because I think you're either, you're predominantly in one or the other. And that's like, because I think it's just like hard to create when you're jumping from one to the other constantly and like an even way and vice versa. I actually think it's really hard to do. coaching responsibilities when you're when you're jumping back and forth so you have to be oriented predominantly in one vector or the other it can't be like a split down even down the middle and to your point it's pretty rarely like a hundred percent or zero Similar to me ceo is like i'm still i seeing a bunch of stuff too it's the stuff that nobody else wants to do (laughs)
0: Like like, so yeah I'm probably also the wrong person to ask in terms of path into to VP product or chief product officer, because I took a very, very unconventional path into, into my role. I was a copywriter and then a product manager, and then I ran a marketing team, and then I ran like a data analytics team, and then I quit my job and did bad startups, and then I did an okay startup, <laughs> and it was acquired. And then I just like rabble roused until, uh, until I ran the whole product team. And then I went to a much, when I came to color, I went to a much, much, much smaller much smaller team, like at Optimizely I had this, this big team, and I showed up a con and they were like, I say, it's like one and a half PMs." Like there was like no one. but but what I wanted to do was build again. And so so I think the other thing is not be I think startups are some of the best ways you can get accelerated career growth into a, a management role, which is just like don't have so much ego go down a little bit. And if you're hungry and you're capable, start a good growing startup where you're actually contributing is one of the best places to sort of position you into, into a leadership role. I mean, I will say I do like the coaching know, I I like building stuff. I do like the coaching part, but I just I take a very different approach to it. I I try to take a very practical approach to what I think it means to be to build a great business and how you become a great leader in service of growing a company, not how you become a great leader in service of sort of a, a career ladder. I think that is one mechanism to build a great company because you can attract great people. You can grow their careers. You can do all that stuff. And so talent can be a really amazing asset to a company, but it's not the only thing. You know, it's it's, it's part of a, a bigger whole.
1: Do you think it's possible to have a large organization, you know, a thousand plus with an emphasis on super ICs, captains, whatever you want to call it, and avoid the over-management and process and bureaucracy?
0: So I have this idea that I think actually people management span of control can go up by a tremendous amount, especially with some of these tools around automations, right? If somebody prepares your one-on-ones, if somebody prepares your career, somebody, I mean, an internet bot, but like, if there are these tools that can automate some of the career development, hiring, check-in, synchronous, you know, asynchronous work, then what I think can happen is people management can go to much broader span of control, but you hire in a lot more captains. And so I actually think the shape and ratios of teams can really change in a meaningful way if some of the kind of rote practice of people management can have some scaffolding around it. So I'm playing with this idea of what would it look like for an engineering manager to have 20 direct reports, three captains, and a whole bunch of automation and tooling around the people people management side of it. And so, again, I'm going back to this, this thesis of team sizes are going to change, team structures are going to change, and managers are going to have to start managing a combination of, of people and software. I, I do think in that world, yes, you can have a much larger organization. I just think you have to structure it very differently.
1: I would just make the observation, it's interesting when these large organizations are facing like a Red level alert threat, like some disruption or some problem that the funny thing is, is that they end up solving it by finding the best ICs in the organization and Mm -hmm. creating small like some people call them SWAT teams or whatever it is and putting it on them. So it's 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 weird that like in wartime mode or when one of those things up the way they actually go solve these problems is in these units or these atomic units that we're talking about. But in like peacetime, for some reason, there's this, you know, gradual, gradual creep that uh, ends up occurring.
0: I do have something to say on this, though, because it's interesting. You, You know, you call it these SWAT teams. I actually, again, the highest impact person, I think, or one of the highest impact people on my team, I see direct to me. And I get pressured a lot to to give him a team as part of his career growth. Not from him, but, you know, everybody's like, this person is amazing. We want to make sure that they feel well taken care of. And I say, this person is a SWAT team of one. They can literally airdrop into any problem, any problem on the team. And I know it will be solved. Like, you want to keep that person loose from the system. So I actually have a person whose job it is explicitly to just drop into problems, you know, spend eight weeks solving them and come up for air and go, what's the next big problem? Totally disconnected from the team. And the other thing that it gives them is a real sense of boundless influence, which is if you're, cons- you're scope constrained to your team, you're like, well, this is what my team's responsible for, and that's what that team's responsible for. But if you're this sort of empowered IC, you can really go, across- and you have high credibility, you can really go across the system and affect and real change. And I think that's a role that people If you get into you are one of the most critical, irreplaceable people will do anything for you in the company. And I think that's one of the strongest positions to be. And and if anybody asked me, should this person be a VP of product? I'd say yes. If anybody asked me, should they be like, I think they are capable of doing every anything. They have informally managed multiple teams. And I would go to bat for them on any type of leadership role, even though they're very...
1: We had one of these crazy. things at HubSpot as well. So yeah. <laughs> it's like the fixer, the person that comes and fixes yeah. it. Claire, I'm interested, you know, as we wrap up here, are there tweets percolating in your head right now? Are, are, there, thi- <laughs> or are there things that haven't, you know, hit made it to the publish button
0: yet? Are there tweets percolating? I mean, this one, I, I actually haven't published about this idea of, of managers managing... Budgets, not headcount. So that's you know, that's one that's like sitting in the drafts a little bit. I think the other, the other kind of like hot take, and this goes I was thinking a little bit about I was talking about ROI and healthcare. Product managers talk about outcomes, not outputs, but at the end of the day, very few product managers are around long enough to see the true outcomes of their their investments, right? Like these things take mm. years to play. I mean, you know this as a, as a CEO, like they just take years to really play out. And did they have the really high impact? Yeah, you can say you increased user engagement by XYZ or, but like, did they actually make the business step change bigger? I think takes time to figure out and very few product managers, I think are around and have tenure long enough to really, really know this. So I would challenge product managers to think about a different way to think about their impact in the short, mid and long-term, and then really be honest with yourself are you actually playing for the long-term? Because I think, going back to incentives, product managers really aren't incentivized to think about long-term. They're they're incentivized to think about short and mid-term. CEOs are incentivized to think about about long-term. And so I think it's really important to recognize that balance and be honest with yourself in terms of how you think about the impact of your work.
1: Should I ship it? (laughs) Yeah, why not? Uh, Yeah. Yeah, is oh, better than the right you go, yeah, <laughs> i don't know if that's true
2: yeah, on yeah, twitter Farizzi's but <laughs> in video, guess, yeah. <laughs> it's probably
1: yeah. not uh, yeah all right we need to wrap here thank you everybody for listening to the episode Please, 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 if you haven't yet, leave us a five-star review on Spotify, Apple, or your favorite listening location. Um, Two, you can also go to reforge.com slash podcast slash unsolicited feedback to subscribe to new episodes. And also, if you're into some of these conversations today around pricing optimization, packaging, a lot of process stuff, check out Artifacts on Reforge. It's completely free. And it's really designed so that you never have to start from scratch on these things. You can get access to a lot of the real work behind some of the leading operators in this space to give you that accelerant, that fast start. Other than that, we'll see you on the next episode.